0: crisis is often a necessary step toward the right kind of change. There has to be a shifting and a disorientation, a disruption of the status quo, because a lot of what we had was unhealthy and needed to be done away with. And there never comes a time when we will say, oh, well, now's the time that we're going to address those things.
1: It's watering time, everybody! It's time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations! You've undoubtedly heard the stats and the stories. You may be well tired of hearing about it, that the Western church is in crisis mode. And you might even think it's true. But Your church might be doing just well. Fine, thank you. But when you're looking at it across the board, it is in free fall. And most people agree with that. We haven't actually heard anyone argue the point. Most of us have the same gut reaction, though, when we do hear it. Oh, that's awful. How do we fix it? I mean, it's a huge, complex problem. But I think we may be looking at the entire situation wrong. What if the crisis is actually the best thing for us? What if God is not only using the crisis, but is actually bringing it about? Let that sink in. Now, why would I say that? It's because... So, we can get back to the heart of our faith, and that's Jesus. See, we can get caught up in power plays, and culture wars, we can get caught up in feeling our way of life is being threatened, and it threatens our understanding of the world, it threatens our understanding of how the world operates and our place within it. But God calls us back to himself. Today, I'm having an important conversation with a very influential and perceptive pastor and theologian in his own right. He's a writer and speaker and has held the position of president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is currently the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. If you don't know the voice from the opening, the description probably gave it away. Today, we are talking with Russell Moore about his brand new book, Losing Our Religion, An Altar Call for Evangelical Christianity. Russell has been through the ringer in the past few years because he has taken principled stands for the faith, specifically that Christians are called to look, act, and sound like Jesus. Now, that sounds crazy because it's so obvious. Of course, we are to look, act, and sound like Jesus. But it doesn't take too much to go online, see some clips, watch the news, and Christians really aren't looking, acting, and sounding like Jesus. And we're going to see that when we don't look, act, and sound like Jesus, we lose more than our credibility. We lose a piece of ourselves. I don't know if you grew up in a church that did altar calls, but I did. And altar calls are about one thing, repentance. That's what this book is about. It's provocative. I got to ask about the problem with revival. Why wouldn't God want to revive us in the midst of this? Will he? I mean, I hope he does, but what if he revives without things changing? Hmm. How can we become modern-day pagans? What about the power plays that we see being brought out politically within churches and in denominations? What about patriotism versus Christian nationalism? And we even talked about how some of our recent legal wins may actually not have the long-term effects that we hope for. It actually could go the other way. It was a short and fascinating conversation with one of the more important voices of our day— And I hope and pray that God might use it to encourage you, to make you think and act in such a way that is pleasing to him. Now, let's get to my conversation with Russell Moore. Happy listening.
0: Russell Moore, welcome to Apollos Water. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: I am so delighted to have you on the show today, and are you ready for the Fast
0: Five? I suppose so, as ready as I can be, I guess.
1: Okay, here we go. I know you're a comic book guy, so Marvel or DC? DC. Okay,
0: then, here's a sub-question. Batman or Superman? You know, it, it's, I guess, Superman, but it's 5149.
1: <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. I was talking to someone the other day and he said, I love Batman. I said, You're nothing like him. He's like, That's probably why I like him. Right. He gets to be oh, the, the dark part that I don't get to be. And anyway. yeah, yeah. Okay. Here we go. Second question. Funniest cross-cultural experience. Ooh. I, I
0: don't know. <laughs> I mean, um, I suppose it's an inter-U.S. cross-cultural. I was going to say that. Go ahead. But I had uh, a—my college roommate was from Belmont, Massachusetts, and uh, seeing him adjust to Southern culture—we were at the University of Southern Mississippi together—was often hilarity ensued, when I would have to explain, (laughs) uh, you know, when you ask the girl out and she says— I probably for ice cream, and she says, I probably shouldn't because I need to lose weight. She's not asking you to say, Yeah, you probably do. (laughs) She's asking you to say, Oh, no, you look great. Come on. And then she'll say, Yes.
1: So you know, I lived in the North Shore of New England. Uh-huh. I understand that. That's a different world. It's, it's a different, a different world. world. It's a different world. And being in the South now, I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm like, I, I need like, is there interpretation of Southern culture, someone to walk around, you know, like he the had a,
0: um, speech communication class where the prof said, I don't know what you're talking about, because he was uh, presenting on charge cards. <laughs> and uh, just, I don't even know what they say. So, you know, charge cards, uh, uh, credit cards, Visa, MasterCard. Uh, oh, okay.
1: <laughs> oh, that's so good. I think the fact that you're doing the accent and you do it well, you do it well, by the way. You do it well. All right, here we go. Number three What is the one dish you ate growing up that encapsulates
0: your youth? Uh, fried shrimp. Fried shrimp. Yeah. Any, um, any seasoning, certain way to do it? Uh, I don't know how my mom does it, but she she does the best fried shrimp I've ever had. And we're from Biloxi, Mississippi, which is a seafood town. And that's the the major industry. And um, yeah. And so it's I'm kind of a snob then for seafood if I'm anywhere else, especially if I'm inland somewhere.
1: Uh, Okay, that's good. Number four. How about this one? What is the one thing about northerners that you
0: just don't get? Um, that they often don't, and it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about. They often don't understand the way that Southerners soften the blow of things, uh, with, uh, with sort of polite wording that if you know what you're saying, you know what you're saying, but there's kind of a, bluntness. kind of like bless your heart, kind of the bless yeah, your heart. But there's kind of a, a, a bluntness that I think is more true in the Midwest, actually, than it is in the Northeast. Hmm. That's I good. Have less, I have less sort of culture gap with Northeasterners than I do with Midwesterners, I think.
1: Huh. That, I never would have put those two together. All right, here we go. Number five. If you could be a Johnny
0: Cash song, what Johnny Cash song would you be and why? Uh, walk the line, I guess. Um, uh, Because... Uh, that's what I would uh, like to do is, is walk the way, walk the line. <laughs>
1: that's a, that's actually a really good one, because I do think that's indicative of your life. Now, let's transition here for a little bit. I'm not from the South, though. I live here now. And yes, where I'm at is, is very much of a Southern part of the culture, uh, Jacksonville. Yeah. But you've been raised there. You live in Nashville now, lifelong Southern Baptist, and these deep cultural roots. How has how have, I, how have all of these shaped you that you would tell us in the northern, western, and western evangelicals about what's going on culturally, even in the in America, that others just don't get? Like, you get it in the south, you see it, because a lot of the stuff that you wrote about is very much southern, but it does go across the culture.
0: Yeah, and I think that there's, um, like with everything else, I think that there's a an ingenuity and a shadow side to any, uh, Mm. ingenuity that's there. So I actually was having a conversation just this morning, uh, uh, oddly enough with a Northern evangelical who's operating in a Southern evangelical space, uh, who's having culture shock. And I'm a Southern evangelical working in a Northern evangelical space who's having culture shock. And so I was trying to, um, I was trying to explain to him kind of how Southern evangelicals think. Um, And a lot of that is the reason that we've been able to to build things, because there really isn't a, there isn't as much, I think, risk aversion uh, in in Southern evangelical spaces uh, Hmm. that can lead to an impulsivity. Let's just build it. But things get built they don't always they don't always uh, succeed but they 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 get built uh, so that's a that's one thing that i see I and mean, the other thing is if you look at um you've had a kind of uh, cultural christianity uh, in the south for mm-hmm. a long time uh, bible belt that has kept some bad things from happening but has not been spiritually good for Uh, Southern evangelicals, that's shifting and changing, but it's changing in a different way than I expected it to. I thought what would happen is that um, the Bible Belt would become more like, not exactly, but more like New England and the Pacific Northwest just 25 years after uh, everybody else. Um, And what I didn't really count on was that cultural Christianity would just de-church. And, and morph into um, rather than the kind of uh, the kind of cultural Christianity that would say I have to belong to a Methodist or Baptist or Episcopalian church in order to sell real estate or meet a spouse or be seen as a good parent or, or mm-hmm. whatever. That's gone away, but what it's been replaced with is a sense of Christian quote-unquote identity That's about what one posts on social media, even though there's no connection to community at all. Mm. So that's a big change, I think, that's happened uh, in the Bible Belt just over the last, really accelerating over the last 10 years.
1: Do you think that with the shift culturally, with everyone moving to the south from the north, especially from the blue states into the red states, that that's reinvigorated
0: some of that as well? Um, I think what's happening is, and I've noticed this in Nashville is that sometimes you have people who are thinking, oh, all these people who are coming from New York and California are bringing New York and California with them. In many cases, I think the problems that we've had have been the reverse. Hmm. It's kind of like, um, you know, any congregation I've ever served, uh, the the people who would be upset if you quoted a Catholic author, for instance, are all ex-Catholics. Uh, mm, yeah. they're, they're the people who are sort of rebelling against that. And so some a lot of times, if you look at, we've got some crazy school board meetings uh, that go on ar- around here. And often they're Californians or New Yorkers or, or, or something like that who are expecting uh, the exact reverse in every way of whatever the last bad thing they had was. Uh, and so, when they don't get that are really hotly upset about it,
1: you know? mess mm, so, I, so I,
0: I think it's it's not it's not worked the way that some people either hoped or feared
1: well, as we look at the culture right now and you've mentioned how things are shifting all over the place, you've also written, and especially as we were talking you know, about your book, losing. Our religion, an altar call for evangelical America. You mentioned the church is in crisis, and I don't think anyone disputes that. I don't see anyone right. walking around saying, Hey, the church is great. Yeah. But you actually say it's a good thing. But I want to know why you say it's a good thing because most people are like,
0: Wait, no, oh, no, 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 no. no." You're saying, No, this is a good thing. Why? Because, uh, because I think that I uh, say it can be a good thing. Oh, it um, can be. Um, yeah. It, it can be a good thing. It, and a lot of that is going to depend on our reaction to it. But mm. I think that. Crisis is often a necessary step uh, toward the right kind of change. Uh, so, if you think about it, I, I was talking to a guy not, not long ago who was really worried because he said, I think I'm going through a midlife crisis. And I said, Great. And he said, Why do you say great? And I said, B- For two reasons. I mean, one, you're not really going through a midlife crisis in a stereotypical kind of way. If you know it's a midlife crisis. <laughs> <The> people who <laughs> are falling apart don't know they're going through a crisis. But secondly, because it's much, much better to have that crisis now of figuring out, you know, what's the meaning of my life? What am I doing? than to go through that kind of crisis on your deathbed. And so just look and see what God is doing in the crisis and what God's bringing out of it. And I think the same thing really applies to, to the church. There, there has to be a, a shifting and a disorientation, um, a disruption of the status quo, because a lot of what we had was unhealthy and needed to be done away with. And there never comes a time when uh, we will say, oh, well, now's the time that we're going to address those things. So it's kind of like with a lot of, um, for instance, a lot of the kind of megachurch scandals that we have Mm -hmm. seen over the past several years, and there've been a lot of them. In almost every case, you have people who knew where this was heading and who said, here are some serious problems that we've got to address, but we can't address them right now because we're in the middle of this uh, building program or in the middle of this missions emphasis or whatever. But there just never comes a point where you say, okay, well, now nothing's going on. So now we can go in and deal with the problems that we have. That moment never comes. And crisis often often does bring those moments in which you say, wait a minute, where are we going? and And is Jesus in front of us or is he somewhere else? And if we respond rightly to this crisis, that could be a good thing.
1: You mentioned, though, not having revival at this moment in time because the, we're in that disorientation because we don't want to have revival. And you actually quote Tozer in the middle of that when he was writing in the early 50s, that if we were to have revival at this moment in time, it would continue to perpetuate the issues that are there. So we don't want revival. We need reformation before that ever occurs. And of course, we know that every 500 years there is a massive shift that we see going on yeah however many of the people that we interact with in our churches they still have this vestige of christendom culture or this cultural christianity if you've referred to it yet it's really not you actually say that it's a form of paganism you call it out how is this christianity because i know most people are like wait a minute what i'm a pagan how am i a pagan i believe in jesus help us to see how this this
0: morphing of christianity it's Christianity. Well, Christianity is premised upon uh, the uh, the the notion of new birth, the the notion of conversion. We we articulate it in different ways in different Christian traditions, but that's at the core of it. And when that's absent, you end up with something other than Christianity. Especially when what you end up with is a Christianity that's a means to some end. And so there are a couple of ways to paganize. I mean, one way is to say, we're going to replace Jesus with Thor. But another way is to say, we're going to replace Jesus with Thor and call him Jesus. Mm. You know, that's paganization too. And uh, a lot of times what we end up with is something that's not Christian at all, but is useful in the sort of world that we want to live in. And that's just not the way of Jesus. Jesus, um, if, you, if you notice the way that Jesus interacts with the people who follow him in the Gospels, they are always saying, ah, oh, what is happening? Uh, I, I, you know, Peter says in John 6, I, I just, I'd like to walk away from here, but I've come to believe that, that, you're, the, uh, that you're the one who holds the words of, of life. I mean, that is the way that Jesus operates. So a useful Jesus who just happens to agree with all of my social and cultural and political uh, emphases, that's that's easy to create. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think often that's what we end up with, not just in the United States, but you end up with it uh, all around the world and it repeatedly happens. So look, for instance, at the Russian Orthodox Church—a really extreme uh, example—which, in many cases, was at least in some sectors of it, heroic in mm-hmm. combating uh, Soviet domination. But now, at least at the leadership level, has become an extension of Putin and Putinism. Uh, well, that's that. Any authoritarian who wants that. You always want that. Because you want to have the ability to have that, that totalizing sort of secular authority. If you come against me, I'm going to do bad things to you. But you also want, if you can get it, the kind of authority that says, if you go against me, you're going against God. Mm. And you're going to hell. And so that becomes then a useful tool. And that's, that's a perpetual temptation, but it's one that Jesus rejected. The Constantinian temptation in a way. Yeah.
1: We've come from circles, we come from similar tribes where people talk about fighting for truth. But when we get into this idea, we find out it's often not truth itself, but it's a cultural fabrication, it's power, it's this idea of identity. You, you mention this um, a lot in the book. How do we help people to see that it, there's a power grab at play under the guise of
0: doctrine? How do we help people to see that? I think the I think the way that we do that is unfortunately a very long process. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who would say, "Okay, how do we sit down and have an intervention uh, in terms of uh, let's let's replace that with Christianity?" I don't think that's the way it works. I mean, it can uh, on a one by one basis in some instances, but not usually. I think mean, usually what it takes is the shaping of intuitions. Um, and so it's not that you're, it's not that you're preparing people for whatever they're going through right now, because usually that's too late I and mean, mm-hmm. you have to do some of that, but it's usually what you're dealing with in front of you right now is something that is kind of light from distant stars. It's, mm-hmm. the, it, it was set in motion a long time ago. What you're actually doing right now is not dealing with what people are debating or fighting about. You're trying to prepare them for 2033 uh, or 2043. And a lot of what you're doing there, because you don't know what you're facing out there in the future, what you're trying to do is to shape and form the kind of intuitions that are able to say, wait, I think I've recognized that. And so they're able to recognize uh, good things because they're embedded in a biblical storyline and they can see, they can feel those things as good. Mm -hmm. Even if they, even if they can't yet kind of articulate why that's the case and they can see bad things and realize, oh, wait, I've seen this before somewhere. Um, And it's because they know what Jeroboam does with the golden calves at Bethel. Uh, the, even if they can't articulate it, they know what happens at Babel because they've been in that storyline, and so that takes a long time of not just teaching, but also a a. Uh, as my my friend uh, Ray Ortland uh, talks uh, often about gospel culture mm. uh, happening congregation by congregation. It it takes that, and it takes a long time for any of us to be shaped and formed.
1: One of the things that we've tried to advocate on the show oftentimes is like a missionary identity or a missionary ecclesiology, this idea of reaching out and having that type of same gospel culture. But I find still that I, when I interact with pastors, that there is much more of the fear of the political ramifications. And I I had one man actually make a post on a, I run a Facebook group for a certain theologian. And he he said, this is great and a congregation's a hermeneutic, but And then he starts going into America and how it's been given to us and we're to be called to be stewards of it. How do we recognize what true patriotism is from a Christian sense and juxtapose that against Christian nationalism? How how do we identify that idolatry that you talk about a great deal within the book? Matter of fact, allow me to read this quote. Christian nationalism is not a politically enthusiastic version of Christianity, nor is it a religiously informed patriotism. Christian nationalism is a prosperity gospel for nation states, a liberation theology for white people, and that it has more in common with the lifeless establishments, the old liberalisms, and some of the social gospels, which preferred a gospel that changed externals did not demand personal repentance and faith. It submerges personal transformation under a social transformation, thus making both impossible. You talk about a my drop. I mean, you, <laughs> you, you did not pull a bunch of shits in there.
0: Well, I mean, if you think about uh, J. Gresham Machen, the yeah. uh, Presbyterian theologian in the 1920s who was a leader in the fundamentalist modernist uh, mm-hmm. controversy, controversy and wrote a little book that was really and is really important, Christianity and liberalism, which I think the word liberalism is unfortunate. I wish he had chosen a different word because when we hear liberalism, you hear Um, some people, what they hear is a, a specific sort of political camp. And, uh, some people, when they hear it think of, uh, what I'm committed to, to liberal democracy, free constitutional democracy. But what he meant, uh, was the kind of liberalization that makes Christianity useful. And one of the things that Machen said was, it does christianity address communism yes but if christianity becomes a means of fighting communism it has become a different religion and so what he was seeing is this idea that uh, and and if you remember early in the 20th century the the so-called liberals were very missions minded Mm-hmm. Um, but often they were missions minded because they were saying, uh, in order to civilize the world, you have to have Christian cultures, and the way you have Christian cultures is to have Christian missionaries, and that's what Machen was rejecting, saying, "No, that that is that is reordering the priorities in a way that actually changes what the religion is," and I think that's exactly what we see uh, happening right now. You have Christianities being it, it's, um, it's useful mm-hmm. in that sense. And it's frankly easier to change externals. It, it's, it's easier. That is much easier than repentance and much easier than new birth uh, because new birth requires supernatural intervention. And so it's just really easy to give um, a message of a total catastrophe Uh, everything's falling apart and they're coming to get you. You can get people revved up with that. Um, Or if if we just do this, this, and this, we can reclaim everything. That's an easy message to give. In the same way, I see a lot of what's happening with Christian nationalism as sort of a secularization of a lot of the prophecy uh, chart movements uh, Mm -hmm. of the last generation. Yeah. When it was really easy to come in and say to people, uh, "We are in the terminal generation. This is the the rapture is right around the corner." I can tell you why because of these these signs that are happening right now, and so you are at the pinnacle of history. Uh, that's a lot easier than coming in and saying, "No man knows the day or the hour, but be ready." You know that that's yeah. a that's a much um, That's a much less easily used sort of statement. But but the second statement is the true one. (laughs) one It is.
1: Have we created this culture that we are then, by having almost a shallow theology or an otherworldly theology, I, I had Vishal Mangawati on and he started going off on Moody Bible Institute, saying that Moody and Biola, but he said was, he goes, there's a reason why on the Supreme Court, we have Roman Catholics and Jews, but no Protestants. Is is it because we've had a shallow theology of we're just otherworldly that we've failed to understand, which seems to fly in the face of our political involvement now?
0: Well, I mean, I would have made that argument. And as a matter of fact, I did make that argument in my dissertation. Uh, 20 years ago. Um, but I no longer think that the problem is otherworldliness. I think it's the opposite problem across the board, which is carnality and worldliness that sometimes can be articulated in otherworldly terms. So if you think about, for instance, uh, back things up uh, to the 19th century and you look at the sorts of arguments about uh, slavery that were being used to defend slaveholding. Uh, some of them were sort of, look at look at these biblical texts, they affirm uh, slavery. A lot of what, though, was the, the most powerful sort of argumentation is this spirituality of the church uh, idea that says, uh, we can't talk about that because that is not a spiritual issue. Well, is that otherworldliness? No, that's carnality because you had people with an interest in keeping the enslavement of human beings going, but they could use otherworldly arguments to say, wait, 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 when you talk about that, now you're now you're talking about something that's a justice issue, and that's a justice issue is not a gospel issue. So, I don't think that it's otherworldliness. and i think uh, I think the reason, for instance, that you see uh, Roman Catholics and I mean, even in the case of Justice Gorsuch, he's an Episcopalian now, but comes from a Catholic uh, background. The reason you see that has to do more with the populist nature of evangelicalism than it does with with any sense of otherworldliness. and it and again, like we talked about at the beginning, uh there's a good side and a bad side to that. The the good side is uh you're able to evangelize the Western frontier uh mm-hmm. with people who are going out and just setting up tents and preaching the gospel. That's the good side. You're you're able to do that. The bad side is that there, there starts to become um set this idea that uh that discipleship means a reflecting back to people whatever the loudest and angriest mobs within the people want. Mm. And once that starts to happen, then you really can't uh, end up with a kind of reflection. Uh, You end up instead with populist movements and they burn themselves out. And I think that is more... More to blame than any sense of, of uh, well, we're not going to give ourselves the life of the mind because we're not going to be here. I I just don't Mm -hmm. think that that was the primary problem.
1: Do you think going forward that we're going to see more of the life of the mind and a holistic faith at the whatever this is, this disorientation moment that coming out on the other side? Let's say that there's a I hate to say remnant because there's talking about millions of people that seems Mm -hmm. strange. But do you see that there's going to be more of a revival and a more of a robust theological framework? Because looking at the denominational, the Pew released the, the numbers on denominations and all went down except to the Assemblies of God and PCA. And of course, Ken Keller giving much more of a life of the mind idea, but I'm seeing other rumblings of others that are saying, no, no, no. I want more. I want to go deeper. I'm tired of this McDonaldization of the church and this very, floaty, you know, surface spirituality. I want to go deeper. And of course, there's the other danger. But do you think it's going to be stronger as a result
0: of going through this disorientation? I have mixed feelings about that. And and the reason I do is because when I was starting out in ministry, I assumed that the problem was a lack of theological depth. Uh, When you're looking around at Bible Belt Cultural Christianity, Mm -hmm. my assumption was because there is so little uh, theology. There's a lot of emphasis on evangelism and missions, and that's great. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on maintaining programs, but there's there's not a lot of deep theology. Uh, that The way we counter that is with theological depth. What I came to see over time is that you could end up with all the same problems of cultural Christianity but, just with a group of people who are um, stroking their chins and uh, blasting people with theological arguments instead of evangelizing their neighbor. <laughs> that's yeah. not a good that's not a good trait and uh, and so that we need to have a deeper theological reflection, but theology is not enough. Mm. and so there's a there's a reason why. Just as uh, with a human being, uh, you, you can't be chat GPT in the flesh, you know, just algorithmic data. Of course. You, you instead have to have uh, reason and imagination and affection and intuition and all of those things together to be a holistic uh, person. I think the same thing is true of the church. And sometimes what we do is when we emphasize one of those things, we end up doing exactly what Paul says you can't do with the body of Christ, which is for the eye to say to the hand, I have no need of you. So where I think we'll have um, health is when you have tension with one group of people saying, wait, we really need to step back and look at this theologically. And another group of people who are saying, yes, but we have an urgency to share the gospel. And another group of people who are saying, we have neighbors who are hurting around us. Let's do that. That that kind of tension is actually healthy because it causes everybody else to see things when it's working the right way. It causes people to see things that they wouldn't ordinarily see. And so if a healthy gospel Christianity I think will look like that.
1: I remember reading Dan Strange and Thermelios when he mentioned that in the first millennium, we're debating on the nature of Jesus, the second one, the nature of salvation, but now we're talking about what does it mean to be human? Yeah. And this idea of holistic embodiment, the emotional side, even the, the as you've mentioned, I, I, when you mentioned we have a thin relational place we're at right now, the technology, we're stretched so thin, we have these pseudo connections, but they're thin. Yeah. So we need to have those thicker relationships and you also mentioned the story seeing ourselves in the biblical story rather than just seeing as an add-on but finding ourselves in it which is that formation idea which isn't just taught it's actually seen and exhibited within the cultural confines of where we're at looking at where you've come from i mean very publicly dealing with the sbc when the sexual abuse report came out in the summer of 2022 I remember reading a lot of your thoughts on it as I read through the report, dealing with the political outcries that you've dealt with. I mean, you've gone through a lot in then publicly exiting the SBC. How has that been for you since that time? Has it been a relief? Has it been, I'm looking over my shoulder? Do you feel like you've been ostracized? Because you've written, this is a lot of this is autobiographical in the book. I mean, you've reflected a lot in there. There's some real pain that have come through the pages, but also a lot of hope too because i know you have a lot of friends that's where you've been nurtured and, and you've kind of attracted people that have come out of that where are you right now as you're dealing with that and processing it
0: well i don't really i don't really think that i have been through anything unusual um as a matter of fact i think in some ways uh i was I was more protected than say a young pastor who's dealing with a, a congregation and doesn't doesn't know uh, what's going to happen to me and where am I hmm. going to to go I mean so I think that I think that I haven't really experienced uh what a lot of other people have to the degree that they have and I I only wrote autobiographically, and I actually was wrestling with whether to do that um because i I just I really hate um oh, I know you've been through a lot. well, I mean, everybody's been through a lot, and i'm I'm fine you know? <laughs> uh, so uh, but uh, the reason I did was because I knew that that where I end up is very hopeful, um and one of the things that I see is just like the the kind of cliche about the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Uh, that's a cliche because it's true mm-hmm. that there's a kind of hope that can that is just naivete or willful blindness to the problems that are there or refusal to to speak about those those problems. And I wanted to say, no, I, I see the problems and I've, I've lived through the problems and I'm still a Christian. And there's a reason why I'm still a Christian. And it's because uh, exactly what, um, what uh, the, the crowd say at the end of John 10, John uh, the Baptist did no signs, but everything he told us about this man, Jesus, was true. And so I'm able to say, okay, I have reevaluated everything. Um, I, I've gone through this time of, of thinking all of this through. And where I've ended up is with a sense of, well, a lot of it needed to go. But everything that they, and by they, I mean not the uh, Southern Baptist sort of uh, ruling structure, but the, the churches, the, the people who raised me in Southern is life, everything they told us about Je- everything they told me about Jesus was true, and there, there's more that was true, and there were other things they told me that weren't, but that was, and I'm even more convinced uh, about the truth of the gospel than I was before, and I'm even more hopeful about the advance of the of the gospel and the and the future of the church than I was before because mm. I don't see it as dependent on um the institutional uh, structures in the same way that I was and I'm a, a huge believer in institutions and in denominations I mean it's I'm still not used to the fact that I'm in a non-denominational church we love our church but it's just I'm the last person on earth to be <laughs> involved <laughs> in anything non-denominational because um I I really believe that institutions, when they're working well, are meant to have that long-term sort of uh, influence that is longer than one uh, given human life. And so that's, that's why I gave so much of my life to shoring up an institution and to shoring up a denomination. But we're at a point right now where I'm able to step back and say, okay, God is not, though, bound to that. And is is doing a lot of things, even as as um, a lot of the structures are falling, and a lot of the other structures have become decadent. God's still at work, and uh, and, and the gospel's still going forward, and I I believe that.
1: I remember discussing with Malcolm Guide. he says, hey, even if we get down to 12, we're good.
0: Yeah, <laughs> even if we get down to 11, we're good. We get That's down to 12 Sorry. and one leaves, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's an encouragement though.
1: I think we need that yeah. encouragement because it can seem like the sky is falling. But yeah, when I look at how God has brought, I mean, I know we could get into the topic of immigration, but I worked with immigrants for many, many years. and I, And in seeing so many of them come from Christian backgrounds. And seeing them reinvigorate the church, being in New England, seeing the white evangelical churches were in decline, but the global evangelicals who were brought in were bringing new life in this incredible way and giving me believable hope and an opportunity for those who don't yet know Jesus. I mean, we had Muslims coming to services, Hindus, they were inquiring because God is doing a work globally. I sometimes wonder where if we're in the way, we're getting in the way of that with some of our religiosity.
0: in in a lot of ways we are, when you think about a lot of things that are being exported out from the United States, uh, I'll often hear from um, faithful African Christian pastors who are saying, just when I start discipling my people, they start getting prosperity gospel uh, material from, and it's all from the U.S., Uh, that sort of thing. But if you look at what, I was just talking to a Canadian uh, yesterday who was talking about the state of the Canadian uh, church, which of course is very Western European. Yeah. And he said, you're, you're, you're seeing that continued irrelevancy and decline, but where you see churches that are thriving, they're Nigerian, they're Korean, they're, uh, they're, they're people who, North African, they're mm-hmm. people who are, who are really re-enlivening uh, Christianity With a kind of Christianity often that has been forged, at least sometimes just a generation back, but has been forged by um, minority status over against Islam or over uh, over against Hinduism or something, or over against uh, Chinese uh, state secularism. And that's actually, Christianity does best in those circumstances.
1: I am in total agreement. One of the things that you mentioned that was another eye-opening thing for me, you talked about the church of Ireland, and, or the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland. You mentioned the sexual abuse scandals that were there, the failure to people to believe it when it finally came out. And then you you put a tie on it that I wasn't anticipating, where you mentioned how it wasn't too long after that, then they vote in favor of abortion, almost like nationwide. And you basically say that the onus and the reason for that vote was because of what happened before their failure to do it because they lost credibility and authority in public life. Do you think there is a, I mean, there is a lesson obviously for that in our culture. Do you think we are reaping what we have sown already because of certain decisions that we've made in that same respect with gay marriage, with what we see going on? in a variety of different factors, racial issues, election things. I mean, do you think that we're starting to reap that, or is that yet still to come?
0: Well, I think if you just look uh, demographically at uh, where the where the country is under 30 and where the country is going uh, under 30, uh, that's that's clearly the case. And so you end up with a—that was one of the reasons why— uh, I would always, uh, I would always say, it used to drive me crazy. With, for instance, the abortion uh, issue, I'm pro-life to my bones. I've been mm-hmm. working in that area for 25 years, um, and it would drive me crazy when people would say, uh, "Well, you know, we don't." Um, we don't need laws. We just need to uh, help people to find alternatives to abortion. And I would say we we have to do both. Yes. If we're actually dealing with two people instead of one, then we need to care for both of those people. And what that requires is a church that really believes that and is supporting them, and a civil state that is is doing everything that that it can uh, too. But if you but the kind of the mirror image of that is this um, sort of using of abortion as a political uh, argument, even in terms of uh, enacting certain laws, but without a culture that understands uh, human vulnerability and dignity of, of human life. And when that goes, I mean... It, a a pro life view and cruelty and misogyny mm-hmm. uh, can't stay together because people eventually see. Wait a minute, that is not consistent. Mm-hmm. And so, what do you end up with? If you have a church that doesn't have credibility, uh, then you have people who are saying, "Well, I don't, I don't trust where the church was on that." So that's what's happening in Ireland is you had people who, as, as uh, Fenton O'Toole talks about in his book, you had people who eventually realized when they were, in some cases, parents bringing their child to apologize to the priest who molested the child. They eventually, there was a realization, wait, it's not just that the church is hypocritical. It's that we are more moral than the church is. Mm -hmm. And once that happens, then there is a loss of credibility and a loss of authority. And usually in in just the way fallen human nature works, it works this way in the church. It works this way out of the church is that most people say, okay, that's the I've seen this bad thing or I've experienced this bad thing. So the answer has to be the complete opposite of it. And that's Mm -hmm. almost never the case. But right. but that's that's what we do, and that's that's one of the reasons. I think I mentioned this in the book. Um, I'm not. I don't remember. But um, if I encounter, you know, I'm on college campuses, university campuses all the time. I'm talking to atheists and agnostics all the time. Ninety eight percent of the time, great, civil, uh, kind, curious people about Christianity. When I do encounter angry atheists. I know, uh, one time I said nine times out of 10, I had to correct that. 10 times out of 10, every time I've ever experienced this, it's been somebody who has had some sort of horrific uh, relationship to a church or to a religious person. And so far, in my experience, there have been none of those circumstances where I've said, well, that really wasn't that bad. In every case, it's like, yeah, that is horrible what was done to you and it's horrible that that was done to you in the name of jesus and they're reacting in in this way in the other extreme so that's that's just the way that human nature works and you're going to see it societally so if you don't have uh if you don't have the sort of pro-life vision that's disconnected from partisanship and cruelty and is is stepping back and speaking to the the rest of the outside world, then what you're going to end up with is exactly what we're seeing right now, which is skyrocketing rates of pro-choice people. Mm. So what what have you really won if you get a bunch of pro-life laws that are then repealed in 20 years by people who are saying, we are never going that direction again? Mm. Uh, and who and who uh, come to increasingly extreme defenses of that. that's not that's not much of a win. Mm-mm. so even and even in terms of um the the very same standards of success that culture warring sets, it's failing. It doesn't
1: well, you mentioned that with the uh, prohibition, you talk about how yep. that was so quickly repealed. And, and I think many Christians are, are starting to wonder that because we have the end justifies the means for many. Look, we've, and you talk a lot about Trump in the book and it's no secret, the public issues that you've had. And because um, speaking out and saying, hey, this isn't a Christian thing to do. It's not, whatever criteria you look at, there's no way that you can justify or mold this to make this happen. Yeah. And yet people say, well, the end justifies the means. Look is what it happened. But as you've said, it's a short-term win. It's a short-term win, and it's not even a long-term win. I mean, if, go ahead if go if that, on that. That. Yeah.
0: and elaborate. Yeah, yeah, that, and and it's. I mean, what what you have to look at is uh, whatever it is that you're saying. Okay, transactionally, this is what we're getting. You have to ask, okay, but what is happening to you? Uh, what are the things that you're willing, not just to kind of ignore, but to actually sanctify? Uh, And to find ways to justify biblically what's happening to you. And then also what's happening to the uh, credibility of a church that says it is so tied with a a particular personality. Uh, Especially when, and I said this to some people one year at the March for Life, uh, when President Trump uh, addressed the March for Life, and it wasn't the way that previous presidents would do, which is to say, you know, I'm with you and thank you for what you're doing. It was essentially a a campaign speech. And I said, you know, but just in terms of pragmatic persuasion, if you're dealing with a person this unpopular with under 30s, and you are saying this is what the pro-life movement is to be pro-life is to have a red golf cap on, then what do you think is going to happen to the pro-life movement? I mean, just put aside all of my moral and constitutional and mental health and everything else, sorts of uh, problems that I have there, even just on your own terms, that's not, uh, that's not a win. Hmm.
1: Well, I know that we've come to the end of our time. You're a very busy man. We like to end our show because we are Apollos Watered. We want to water people's faith. And we we like to end the show and say, by giving people uh, a water bottle for the week, something for them to sip on. What's a uh, water bottle that we can give our audience to sip on this week?
0: Well, I'm teaching through Exodus right now at my uh, church. And one of the things that I'm I'm struck by is how God seems to be absent in Exodus 1 and 2, Uh, just doesn't seem to be involved at all, and yet he is. God heard his people and he knew, uh, Exodus 2 says. And so God is at work in all of these ways that we're not seeing, both in terms of the broader world, but also in terms of our own personal lives And that's part of what that Hebrews 11 walk of faith is about. And so simply having a sense of, I really can trust you to be at work, even when I don't see what you're doing, is Mm. a blessing.
1: It is a blessing. I want to thank you for coming on Apollo's Water. Thanks for having me. Russell has been through it in the last few years. He's come through the fire, not unscathed, but with his faith intact and hopeful. That's a great testimony to us and for us. I actually let Russell riff on a couple of topics from the book, and we honestly barely scratched the surface of the things that he covered in it. We didn't have that much time. I mean, he was talking about losing our credibility, losing our authority, our identity, our integrity and stability. And all of those are true. In each chapter, he outlines both how we lost those elements and what we can do in response. That's where the encouragement comes. And if you've been paying attention to Russell's journey and writings over the past couple of years, it sort of distills it all in one place. It is certainly uncomfortable at various places in the book. I mean, he really does poke and prod. And in the book, he calls us both individually and as the church to repentance, not in a mean-spirited or holier-than-thou kind of way, but in a genuine Let's follow Christ sort of way. He's hopeful, at least in part, as he said, because for all of the things the church of his youth got wrong, and I think we can all say the churches of our youth got some things wrong, and for all of the things we've had to jettison, we can see that, honestly, oftentimes it got Jesus right, and that's the main thing. I particularly loved his water bottle for the week. That in Exodus 1 through 2, when it seemed God wasn't there, he heard and responded to his people. I love the words of Francis Schaefer He is there and he is not silent. We can be tempted to think that God isn't there in our lives, that he's not at work in our culture, but he knows, he sees. And we can trust that he is at work in both the world at large and in our lives. In particular, he is at work in your life. As John Piper has said, God is doing 10,000 things right now in your life, and you might be only aware of one of them. He sees what's going on with you. He sees what's going on in our culture. He is there, and he's not silent. Even when we can't see him, he's there. That's a good word. I want to encourage you to check out our website, apolloswatered.org, and learn about our watering weekends, because we would love to be able to come and visit your group or your church as we help equip others in their missionary encounter with Western culture. I want to thank our Apollos Watered team for helping to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.